Colectivo Raíces presenta su programa Espejos de Aztlán Información, arte, cultura Bienvenidos Buenas tardes Nuevo México, bienvenidos a su programa Espejos de Aztlán Good afternoon and welcome to your Espejos de Aztlán show. My name is Rafael Martinez and I will be your host for tonight's show. This afternoon we will be featuring the story of poet, novelist, and writer Demetria Martinez. We will be listening to Demetria Martinez speak about her 1988 trial for allegedly transporting two Salvadorian refugees into the United States. This lecture was recorded by the Humans of New Mexico Collective as part of the people-powered New Mexicans and Social Movements, an exhibit and lecture series in collaboration with the National Hispanic Cultural Center. Later on in the show, we will also be hearing from Marian Bach, who will provide us with a brief history of the sanctuary movement and current updates on the sanctuary cases here in Albuquerque, New Mexico. We would like to offer thanks to the New Mexico Faith Coalition for Immigrant Justice for help in their contributions to this event. Let's listen to Demetria Martinez's own words that would transport us back into 1988 into the events that would lead into her trial. There's a call for me. It's Glenn, a Lutheran minister. He has become involved with the faith-based sanctuary movement. He told me weeks earlier that immigration officials are investigating him for bringing refugees into the United States illegally. He believes his phone is being tapped, so he speaks to me in code. There's going to be a party, he says, and you're invited. Translation, he's been indicted, and so have I. The U.S. government has charged me with conspiracy, inducing illegal aliens to enter the country, and aiding in their transportation. Translation, 25 years in prison and $2.5 million in fines. If there was a conspiracy, this was it. In 1986, the year before the indictments, Glenn and two other men, a Lutheran and Presbyterian, decided to drive to the U.S.-Mexico border to help two Salvadoran women cross into the country. I accepted the minister's invitation to go along. There might be a story here for the journal's religion page or another paper I wrote for, the National Catholic Reporter. Throughout the U.S., churches and synagogues were offering their sacred spaces as sanctuaries for Central American refugees. Individuals were opening up their homes. Desperate Guatemalans and Salvadorans were fleeing north to escape disappearance, torture, death, and a civil war. Many of these were dissidents, questioning the status quo in which a tiny percentage of the elite owned most of the nation's resources. The U.S. was supporting those countries' dictatorships and their death squads in the name of fighting communism, then refusing to grant asylum to those who were fleeing for their lives. Here's what I remember of how I participated in the so-called crime. Three men and I left Albuquerque early in the morning. We drove to south in two cars, eventually arriving at the Gila Wilderness. To prevent an encounter with the Border Patrol, the men had disguised the cars to give up the appearance of a fishing expedition. Rods poked out of windows. One car had a kayak affixed to its rooftop. I can't recall if it was summer or fall, but in my memory, aspen leaves glitter gold. Or were they green? 
My memories have the quality of a painting now. Images sharp, blurry, and sharp again. Due, I suspect, to the trauma of having had the details of that trip used against me in a court of law. We got back on the freeway, drove to El Paso, and parked near the border. Next, I see us in a Juarez train station where Glenn finds the two women, exhausted, pregnant. Next image. A woman coyote has put the women in a rubber raft, or was it two? They cross a sluggish Rio Grande. We meet them on the El Paso side and somehow end up at a safe house for the night. Next memory. We are in the Gila wilderness again, driving back to Albuquerque. We pull over to the side of the road to pee. Pregnant women need to urinate frequently. Then we return to the gold or green-leafed aspens. My reporter's notebook is within reach throughout the journey. I took notes, but in the end I wrote a poem about the trip, not a story. This was not a time for interviews, for a reporter's intrusive questions, wielding a pen like a sword. I was happy to have researched a sanctuary journey, to have witnessed a moment in history marked both by brutality and solidarity. We just listened to Demetria Martinez's poetic words that recount her journey across the United States-Mexico border as a journalist during the midst of the sanctuary movement in the 1980s. Next, Demetria Martinez will talk about the court case, but more specifically, talk about why she wrote Mother Tongue in relation to all of the things that she lived in the midst of her court case. Expressionless faces, my life in their hands. The jury foreman returns the verdict. Not guilty rings out over and again like church bells. The jury acquits Glenn because the year of the trip, New Mexico was a set sanctuary state, as declared by then-Governor Tony Anaya. I, too, was found innocent. The jury concluded that the First Amendment protected my activities as a reporter. Freedom of the press. A few years following my trial, I wrote Mother Tongue. The novel is about a Salvadoran refugee named Jose Luis. A dissident, he faces certain death if deported back to his country. He stays at the home of Soledad, who has had to go to Arizona for the summer to care for her mom. She puts her goddaughter, Maria, in, in charge of Jose Luis. Maria promptly falls madly in love with him. I'll begin by reading a letter from Soledad to Maria. It illustrates the ways in which Soledad disguises Jose Luis's identity to keep the border patrol at bay. Dear Mary, I've got a lot to pack, so I have to type quickly. My El Paso contact arranged for our guest to fly out on Amera Air. He should arrive tomorrow around 4 p.m. As I told you last week, don't forget to take the Yale sweatshirt I gave you, just in case his clothing looks too suspicious. Send him to the nearest bathroom if this is the case. The Border Patrol looks for un-American clothing. I remember the time they even checked out a woman's blouse tag right there in the airport. Echo in El Salvador. It took us another year and the grace of God to get her back up after she was deported. Anyhow, when he comes off the plane, 
Speak to him in English. Tell him all about how the relatives are doing. When you're safely out of earshot of anyone, remind him that if anyone asks, he should say he's from Wadis. If he should be deported, we want immigration to have no question that he's from Mexico. It'll be easier to fetch him from there than from a Salvadoran graveyard. Later on, it might be helpful to show him a map of Mexico. Make him memorize the capital and the names of states. And I have a tape of the Mexican national anthem. These are the kinds of crazy things La Migra asks about when they think they have a Central American. Oh yes, and if his hair is too long, get him to Sandoval's on 2nd Street. The barber won't charge or ask questions. El Paso called last night and said he should change his first name again, something different from what's on the plane ticket. Tend to this when you get home. As I told you earlier, our guest is a classic political asylum case, assuming he decides to apply, complete with proof of torture. Although even then, he has only a 2% chance of being accepted by the United States. El Salvador's leaders may be butchered, but they're butchering on behalf of the democracy, as they say, so our government refuses to admit anything might be wrong. Now, I know St. Paul says we're supposed to pray for our leaders, and I do, but not without first fantasizing about lining them up and shooting them. It is quite a treat to listen to Demetria Martinez read from her Chicana classic novel, Mother Tongue. Originally published in 1994, in the first passage, Demetria reads the section of the novel where the main character, Mary, is receiving instructions to pick up the other main character, Salvadorian refugee, Jose Luis. And she is to take him from the airport and safely transport him to Albuquerque. Next, Demetria will read from the novel in the passage where she talks about the cases of refugee and immigration in the 80s and 90s, leading up to the relationship that is born between Mary and Jose Luis. Let's listen. We used to marry off the worst cases for the piece of paper so that they could apply for residency and a work permit. But nowadays, you can't apply for anything unless you've been married for several years and immigration is satisfied that the marriage is for real. Years ago, when Carlos applied, immigration interrogated us in separate rooms about the color of our bathroom tile, the dog food brand we bought, and when we last did you-know-what, to see if our answers matched. Those years I was married, I even managed to fool you. That is, until we got the divorce, the day after he got his citizenship papers then. <laughs> But you were too young for me to teach you about life outside the law, which used to be so simple in the old days. I don't know how long I'll be in Phoenix. My mother's fall was a pretty hard one, And if she needs surgery, I could end up here for the summer. Don't forget to feed the cats and take out the garbage. Put this under your door so that if they ever catch me, I won't have conspiratorial use of the mails added to all the other charges I've chalked up. Rip this up. Be careful. Love and prayers. Soledad. P.S. Take it from one who survived the 60s, 
Assume the phone is tapped until proved otherwise. P.S. number two, and don't go falling in love. <laughs> August 5th, 1982. Dear Mary, Mijita, if you must lose your head over that boy, at least apply yourself and use the experience to shore up your Spanish. <laughs> How do you think I learned English? Remember that good-for-nothing first husband I told you about? Well, we were young and in love, and what he said when we were together needed no translation. Falling in love with a man who speaks another language, you develop a third ear. First, you struggle to understand what he says. Then you begin to hear what he means. Then the relationship falls apart, but you're the better for it. <laughs> Me, I learned English because I had to. It was not fun until I met the good-for-nothing. When I came up from Mexico, I gathered words like dung to fertilize life in this alien land. And over time, I fell in love with English. Men, they came and went, but the language is mine forever and ever. Remember that. I write this by the bluish light of my mother's TV screen. My favorite Spanish preacher is on, beamed in from Nogales. Outside there's a wild storm, and a bad feeling is in the air. Well, all this is neither here nor there. I'm so happy you and Jose Luis are getting along. It's good that between the volunteers and household chores and your hanging out together, he is developing a routine. Structure does wonders for people. Thank him for taking over my vegetable garden. All I ask is that when he's not looking, sprinkle his shoes with holy water. I've been worried ever since you told me he told you. His pair belonged to a compañero the treasury police gunned down. The water will bless the footsteps of the living and the dead. Now write soon in Spanish. And if you don't know a word... Make it up. <laughs> Love and prayers, Soledad. Buenas tardes, Nuevo México. Welcome back to your Espejos de Aslan show. We are featuring a lecture and reading by Demetria Martínez, recorded by the Humans of New Mexico Collective. Before the break, Demetria was reading from her 1994 novel, Mother Tongue, recounting the story of the main characters, Mary and José Luis, and how their love was brewing. Next, we will listen to Mary and José Luis' experience right here in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Escuchemos. Soledad had a saying, reality is a lump of clay and prayer is the potter's wheel. I believed her because by late July or early August, not long after she called to say she was praying for us, both Jose Luis and I found part-time work in Old Town. He washed dishes at the cantina where the owner had no qualms about hiring illegals. He paid less than the minimum wage, but always in cash and on time. 
and I covered for the owner of a bead shop when she was off on buying trips. After finishing his shift at the cantina, José Luis sometimes crouched under the portal to look at silver and turquoise laid out on blankets in long furrows. He used to linger at the rug of a Navajo woman who sat on a precarious throne of milk crates as she awaited the day's harvest of tourist dollars. Now and again, groups of tourists engulfed her, cutting off my view of José Luis. This used to unnerve me. The Border Patrol had recently opened an office declaring Albuquerque a border town, a city like El Paso or Brownsville, ordered to empty its pockets and produce its documents. I feared if I lost sight of José Luis, the patrol might take him away in one of its avocado-colored vans. And they could have, easily, they were armed to the teeth. To track José Luis, I developed a sixth sense. Scanning the sea of tourists, I managed to latch onto a white patch of fabric among earth-toned clothing the better-off tourists ordered that year from the Banana Republic catalog. His swatch of t-shirt became a kind of hologram that revealed the whole of him to me in three dimensions, and I held to that vision until the tourists moved on, their purchases made, cameras banked with images of a real Indian. Looking back now, I wonder what troubled me more the fear that the Border Patrol might see José Luis, or that the tourists in his midst could not see him, at least not in three dimensions. No, he was very dark, a dishwasher, an illegal alien. Had he spoken English, it would not have mattered. He still would lack the credentials pinned on those with British or French accents. All over the city, refugees were rendered invisible with each stroke of the sponge or rake they used to clean motel rooms and yards and porches. Unlike wealthy refugees who fled their pasts and bought homes in Santa Fe, people like José Luis lacked the money to reinvent themselves. So they became empty mirrors. For this next segment, Demetria reads from a section in the novel in which she highlights the ways in which language can transport us across any borders and human restrictions. Demetria ends with the personal accounts between the main characters as a way to depict the reality of Central American refugees through the story of José Luis. Let's listen to Demetria's powerful last words in her reading. Here is a poem José Luis wrote, dated August 13th. 1982. As part of a Spanish lesson, he had me translate it. We kept several dictionaries on the kitchen table. Dodging from word to word for hours at a sitting, we made our way across borders of language without passports or permits. I hid whatever poems he gave me in a sock drawer. The feelings his poetry engendered in me were like nothing I had experienced before. His words and those of the poets he admired made me want to sell my belongings, smuggle refugees across borders, 
protest government policies by chaining myself to the White House gate? Romantic dreams, yes, but the kind that dwell side by side with resistance. The space we cleared on the kitchen table to do translations, near folders of news clippings about El Salvador, was a magic circle. It was beyond law and order. One day he told me about the strange markings on his hands and his back. Sitting on the end of the bed, he sucked on a cigarette and flicked ashes in a beer can that he held between his thighs. He said, guards snuffed out their cigarettes on my body, one by one. It says so in the affidavit, 33 burn marks, not birthmarks, like I told you the first time we made love. As he spoke, his face melted into a trail of waxy tears. But because he believed men should never cry, I looked the other way. Not only cigarettes, he said, but electric wires on my genitals. Then, as if I were a stranger whom he had run out of things to say to at a party, he turned away, tapped his finger on the beer can. He felt ashamed not because he survived while others died, but because the intimacy was too much, a window thrown open too wide. To tell another person about what was done to your body in the name of politics is a frightful act of intimacy, risky beyond sex, because a man can make love for years and not reveal much of himself at all. I took some almond oil, offered to rub his back, his shoulders blades that's tensed like birds' wings before a flight. Beneath my hands was a constellation of markings that in any other lifetime might have been a momentary flushing of skin in the fire of passion, marks left by a woman's fingernails. And as, as I so often did in those days, I refused to believe my own eyes. I refused to believe that what I was seeing was a pattern of scars the legend to the map of his life, 1982. Someone had branded those numbers into his back. You had to really look to see, as if searching heaven for the Big Dipper on a cloudy night. 1982 was the year he was tortured, that thousands were tortured, in a country the size of Massachusetts, in a country named after Christ. Sweat and heat. The memory of it keeps me from getting to the sad part of the story. In the summer of 1982, a steamy Rio Grande opened the pores of the city and released aromas of mesquite, pine, and cedar. The heat made it easier for me to find those places on Jose Luis's body that were oblivious to the war. After we made love, I often smelled Bougainvillea near the place where his heart beat like wings against the bars of a cage. And I came to understand why Jose Luis and, uh, and others like him risked everything. Even if they were too young to remember life without war, their bodies remembered. Their very cells concealed the scent of a healed El Salvador. The days the temperature climbed to dizzying heights, I believed in God. I believed he devised the sense of smell so that people would struggle not for abstract ideas, but for memory, 
the scent of the land and wind before men invented war. Thank you. El día había comenzado entusiasmado y alegre. Dice. Pasaporte. ¿A dónde va por ahí, Aminario? Con esta noche tan fea. ¿Usted no se anima? Mire cómo está el camino. Anegadito. No, hombre, compa. El camino es lo de menos. Importante llegar. We hope that you enjoyed listening to Demetria's lecture and reading in our first segment for today's Espejos Aslan show. It sure was a treat to hear insight into her journalistic journey in traveling with Central American refugees, accounts of her trial, and also her poetic readings of Mother Tongue. For the second segment, we will be featuring Marian Bach, who is a leader and coordinator with today's Sanctuary Movement in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Marion starts by providing us with a brief history of the different ways in which sanctuary has been used historically in the United States. During the Vietnam War, conscientious objectors started taking refuge in churches on the assumption that the government wouldn't send in special forces to drag them out. And the government sent in special forces to drag them out. And the public reaction to this was so negative that the government developed something called the policy on sensitive locations. Sensitive locations being churches, places of worship, hospitals, and schools. If you actually read the policy, and it's only a policy, it's not a law, so they're not bound by it, but it is their policy not to surveil or raid churches, hospitals, schools. Well, they've done hospitals and schools, As we know, they have detained parents who were leaving a hospital after their baby had brain surgery, and they have detained people who are dropping their children off at school, and of course you can't do that without surveillance. So we know they're violating their own policy. As one of the wonderful immigration attorneys in town says, remember, there's a difference between what they can do and what they will do, and then we sue them. Sanctuary in the 70s started with the... Vietnam veterans. Then in the 80s, when <coughs> Demetria and Glenn were involved, it was a matter of sheltering people who were fleeing for their lives from Central America and came with literally nothing, literally the clothing on their back in most cases, and were sheltered in churches such as my church, University Baptist Church in Seattle. And there were, over the years, there were a total of 30 people from Central America who lived in that building in Seattle and two babies born there. And they stayed there for lack of anywhere else to be until they either normalized their status in the United States or got to, most of them got to Canada. Some of them in the trunk of a card. So now we have Americans living in sanctuary. And when I say Americans, I mean Americans who don't happen to have documents, but they have been here for decades. Some have never really known any other country as home. They are part of this country. They are Americans. Qadam Abu Mohammed is in sanctuary. He's from Iraq. He worked in Iraq with American military forces during the Gulf Wars, and for that had to leave the country, came here as a refugee, and is now under threat of deportation, which in his case means that if he leaves that church, he could quite literally die. We believe he would be assassinated if he returned to Iraq, and that's if the plane ride didn't kill him because he's in very poor health. He's a lovely man, but so what? What if he wasn't? 
He is still someone who served our country and is now under a terrible threat. At uh, a few miles away at the Quaker Meeting House, there's a, an also lovely woman named Emma, who is from Honduras, who's been in this country about 26 years. She came here as a very poor widow with small children, intending to work a few years, send money home, and then go home. And two years became three, became four, became five, and there was never a good time to stop sending money home. And then she met a man named Robert Morales and fell in love and got married. Then one of her daughters came into this country with documents. So she now has a husband, daughter, and grandson who are all U.S. citizens, whom she might never see again if she's deported. We love her, and we make sure that there is round-the-clock accompaniment for her. The job of the accompaniment volunteers, though they may spend most of their time reading or chatting with uh, Emma and Cotton or catching up on work, their job is to make sure that no ICE agent enters the building without a properly executed federal warrant, and they're famous for trying to get in with less than that, and to videotape whatever happens in that event. What will happen? We really don't know because so far ICE has not raided a church. Sanctuary, open up your heart. Thank you all for joining us today for your Espejos de Aslan show. I have been your host, Rafael Martinez. We would like to give a special thanks to the Humans of New Mexico Collective for recording today's feature reading and lecture with our guests, Demetria Martinez and Marianne Bach. You can listen to this and other Espejos de Aslan shows on our two-week archive on KUNM.org. Buenas noches. Have a good night, everybody.